Welcome back to the show, the American Craftsman Podcast, Season Two, Episode Thirty One. Yeah, it's uh, it's flying by. Yeah, I know we're uh, over halfway through Season Two. We're on the arts and crafts movement, one of our favorites, of course. Yeah. And today we're going to talk about notable figures. Got some good names in here. Yeah, yeah. We're gonna we're gonna start with. Oh, should we start with? Uh, Thanking uh, Bits and Bits. Absolutely. So we want to thank our sponsor, Bits and Bits. Head over to uh, Bits and Bits and get yourself some router bits, CNC bits. Uh, They have Festool products there as well. Mainly uh, the consumables for the the routers and the Domino Mm -hmm. and stuff like that. Uh, They make uh, their own bits. They sell white side bits as well with their proprietary Astra coating. They're actually the only company that... uh, is um, allowed to do that by Whiteside. So they take Whiteside bits and they apply their proprietary coating, which they're calling Astro coating, which, you know, helps keep the bits cool, keeps them sharper longer, um, which, you know, is always nice. That's what it's all about. I mean, any bit can can make one cut. Yeah. Well, not any, but... <laughs> Some bits. Some bits can make one cut. Most bits will make one cut. Mm-hmm. Some get about halfway through before it, you start to burn. But these things really work. And, you know, we have... a sm- We'll call it a small production shop. Yeah. You know, we're, we're an artisan shop. But, uh, you know, we make our living with our tools. Mm-hmm. So we... You know, buying wisely is all part of being able to stay in business. Yeah. Yeah, so support another small United States-based uh, company. Mm-hmm. Support the podcast. Head over to Bits and Bits <laughs> and use the coupon code American Craftsman. Save yourself some money on some really good router bits. Yeah, cool. All right, let's get into it. Oh, we're starting with a biggie. We're, we're not going to pull any punches. Number one, Gustav Stickley. Who? <laughs> this guy. <laughs> he was a baseball player, wasn't he? Yeah, third base for the Detroit Tigers. <laughs> if the name Gustav Stickley sounds familiar, it may be because Stickley's one of the most recognizable names in American furniture. Yeah. Um, chances are, I mean, if you stop somebody on the street, what? how many people would you have to stop before they heard of Stickley? 50. 50? Yeah, around here. Yeah, you might. I might be pushing it. <laughs> yeah, maybe 150. <laughs> but let's say at uh, work at uh, work. What the, what the hell is it work called? Bench con? No, not work bench con. 350. Um, the camp, maker camp, maker camp. Hmm. Because that was a blacksmithing kind of thing. 30. Yeah. Well, Stickley was a furniture maker, um, a visionary designer, and influential publisher that was a key driving force in bringing the arts and crafts movement to America in the early 1900s. Hmm. Uh, let's let's talk a little bit about Stickley's early life because um, he's worth knowing about. The guy... Uh, is a biggie in in the furniture world. Uh, Did you know he was born Gustavus Stuckel? 
Hmm. Or Stokel? Stokel, I believe. Yeah. I didn't. And I've read books on Stickley, and I don't think they uh, included that information. Yeah. He was the oldest of 11 siblings, uh, born in 1858, and uh, immigrate, immigrates from... Uh, boy, I'm got, I got a, got a tough one. It's like a, my Germany. Dentures, my dentures aren't in today. I think that's pronounced Germany. He comes from Germany to Osceola, Wisconsin, which is a frontier town at the time. Hmm. Osceola sounds like a Florida name. I know. Well, then it's definitely natives, right? Florida Native man. American. Gustav's father abandoned the family, <laughs> moving mother and children to Brant, PA, to be with relatives. Hmm. Uh, this is where Stickley begins making furniture, working for his uncles. Uh, in 1883, at the age of 25, Stickley starts a furniture company with two brothers, Charles and Albert. Uh, and they built some, and they, um, this is a terrible sentence I wrote. They built some, and I think they sold some by other makers. They built some, and some, some by other area makers. <laughs> yeah. I think I was supposed to write and sold some by other area makers. Okay, so yeah, they were selling their <clears throat> stuff and other people's stuff. Yeah, they didn't just bust onto the scene, um, you know, fully grown and developed. Uh, five years later, in, in 1888, Gustav splits with his brothers to pursue bigger things with Elgin Simons. This is a guy I never heard of, <laughs> um, but he's one of Gustav's early partners. Um, and in 1888, it's also the same year that the arts and crafts movement is born in England. Uh, so Gustav's operating in Pennsylvania. He's in his late twenties and he's got hopes and aspirations. Um, a good amount of time goes by as he turns 40 He's growing restless, uh, and he's also not content with the mass production and elaborate and ornate revivalist reproductions. Oh, yes, that, so they're building. That Stickley and Simons are are making. So mm -hmm. he starts over on the dark side, Stickley does. Yeah. They're doing all the stuff that the arts and crafts movement um, is rebelling against. Right. So he starts experimenting with furniture designs that had simpler, cleaner lines and were sturdily built. Um, all the while around him, the arts and crafts movement is growing. Um, so this is interesting because we think of Stickley as kind of like a founding father when really he's an adopter. Of the movement, in a sense. Yeah. I mean, he's been in the furniture game for 15 years now. Yeah, but it wasn't a thing yet. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so Stickley and Simons began to differ as to the direction the company should take. Ultimately, that same year, Stickley forced Simons out by buying him out and essentially firing Simons, who was president of the company. Backstabber. I've heard about things like that occurring. Yeah. Uh, initially, the Gustav Stickley Company continued to manufacture designs very similar to those 
of Stickley and Simons, but within two years, the furniture design shifted distinctly towards those simpler designs of his experiments. Uh, within a year, Stickley's new furniture designs have been presented for market nationwide. Now, is, it, is he in New York at this, he, at this point? He's in Pennsylvania. Still in Pennsylvania. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, because eventually goes to upstate New York, right? I thought the company with his brothers was in New York too, but I could be wrong. Um, may have missed something there, but I don't. I, I didn't add that. Um, so his career pinnacles in 1901. Uh, where we, we made it, folks. We made it to the <laughs> 1900s. <laughs> Four hundred years into the future. From where once we came. From the pilgrims to now. That's it. We're breaking ground. It's still last century. It is. Stickley founded the Craftsman, a periodical which began by expounding the philosophy of the English arts and crafts movement, but which matured into the voice of the American movement. You know, it just kind of struck me. These guys all had publications. Yeah. And I was thinking, you know, we were sort of lacking in that area. No, this is our publication. Exactly. We're here doing our podcast. Yeah. And we have... Um, the American Craftsman podcast. podcast. We have Instagram accounts. Mm -hmm. We have all these things. So we are proponents of, of the movement, of what we do and all those things. Carrying the torch. Yeah. Um, and pitchfork. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. So the Craftsman, uh, again, founded in 1901, was a magazine and uh, it was used as a tool to educate the middle class on sound design principles and ideas. Uh, so Stickley, he may have picked up on the fact that uh, arts and crafts furniture in England was sort of inaccessible to, to the middle class. Yeah. Here's another name I've heard of. Um, he worked with Harvey Ellis, who was an architect, uh, to design house plans for the magazine. And uh, there were 221 different homes published in the Craftsman over a 15-year period. Plans for 221 homes. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah. Um, Ellis, in a bunch of the books that I have with... Um, Stickley's furniture designs. There is furniture by Harvey Ellis as well. Mm -hmm. I didn't realize early on that he was um, an architect. I thought he was, oh, I always just thought he was furniture. Know, another furniture dude. Yeah. Um, Stickley also established the Craftsman Home Builders Club in 1903 to spread his ideas about domestic organic architecture. These ideas had an enormous influence on the Frank Lloyd Wright. On the on Frank That's Lloyd Wright. That's name I'm not recognizing. Yeah. Frank who? Stickley believed that a house ought to be constructed in harmony with its landscape, with special attention paid to selecting local materials. I love that. An open floor plan would encourage family interaction and eliminate unnecessary barriers. I thought they came up with that in the 2000s. Yeah, right? The open floor plan? Yeah. Uh, this is from 1903, remember? Hmm. 
Built-in bookcases and benches were practical and ensured that the house would not be completely reliant on furniture from outside. Hmm. More built-ins. Exposed structural elements, light fixtures, and hardware are all considered to be decorative. And artificial light should be kept to a minimum. So large grouping of windows were necessary to bring in light. Exposed joinery, windows, built-ins, open floor plans, you know, pay attention to where you put your house, how it integrates with the landscape. Yeah. Local materials. These are all such sound principles. It's wild that it has to be this, not groundbreaking, but it has to be this sort of outsider's viewpoint. Mm-hmm. Um, it seems just common sense. Yeah. Well, there's an ebb and a flow and it, he was going in the opposite direction of where the where the flow was going. Yeah. Uh, Stickley wrote, the word that is best loved in the language of every nation is home. For when a man's home is born out of his heart and developed through his labor and perfected through his sense of beauty, it's the very cornerstone of his life. Yeah. Between 1900 and 1916, a style of furniture featuring a severely plain and rectilinear style, which was visually enriched only by express structural features and the warm tones of the wood gained popularity in the U.S. Um, that's the arts and crafts style coming into being. Yeah. This furniture referred to as Mission Oak was an American manifestation of the arts and crafts movement. There's a lot of crossover um, between these things and confusion, uh, mission and arts and crafts style. It's also frequently encouraged readers to create their own decor. The magazine ran its last issue in 1916. So not a crazy run. No, not at all. Uh, 13 years. Um, and, uh, Stickley's approach to furniture became his company's trademark with, to the best of my ability, but in his, uh, uh, native German, it's what, als ich kon? Something like that. <laughs> I don't know why. I don't speak the German. <laughs> when you speak German like that, sounds like you should be doing some military salute. Yeah. <laughs> to the best of my ability, we'll, we'll say, is the um, company trademark of Stickley. We've, we went over that, actually, in the past. Mm-hmm. Um, Stickley, in addition to being a furniture designer, manufacturer, and entrepreneur, he was known as a dreamer who developed a philosophy about initiating young men to adulthood through a combination of hard work, Mastery of craft, academic study, and deep thinking. So it sounds like an academy of sorts, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, an indoctrination. <laughs> well, yeah. They have Kool-Aid at these meetings? 
Um, it, it sounds cool. Stickley conceived of and built Craftsman Farms in Morris Plains, New Jersey. Not too far from here. No, it's a sin that we haven't made it. I know. Um, with the purpose, purpose of establishing a school for young men based on his ideas. Um, I know the last time we checked, it was closed. Yeah, I'm going to check again. I love the... Temporarily closed. I love the sentence. As well as being a designer, furniture maker, et cetera, et cetera. He was also known as a dreamer. Man, they must have got hit really hard because, I mean, how long ago was Tropical Storm Isaiah's? Yeah, um, doesn't the county or 18 months maybe own it now or something like that? Wasn't it gifted to the government in some form? Uh, I don't know. It's it's sticklymuseum.org is the um, website. So it makes me think it's still owned by by the Stickley family. Well, by, yeah, whatever organization. Yeah, whatever. um, What do they call that? The foundation or? Yeah, like the. uh, uh, there's a word for that. I mean, yeah. I know what you're thinking of, but I can't think of it. Operated by the Craftsman Farms Foundation. Okay. Stickley and his family, they lived at Craftsman Farms for 10 years. Um, He enjoyed the life of a gentleman farmer, but the school never attracted any students. Yeah, I remember reading that. Yeah, that's um would have been an interesting development. Imagine if it was still going today. Got to get it reopened. That would be a cool thing. Green Street Farms. Come drink the Kool-Aid. So what's the legacy of Stickley? Um obviously it can't be summed up in a few sentences. Um but to this day, his name is affiliated with the very distinctive, clean, and simple style of Mission Furniture, also known as Craftsman Style. Um, original Stickley Furniture pieces are expensive and sought after, as you might imagine. Yeah. And uh, Craftsman Farms is on the Registry of National Historic Landmarks. It's open to the public as a museum, um, although as... Of right now, it's it's closed for repair. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the Stickley's original log home and the surrounding buildings uh, were spared from developers in 1989 when the township of Parsippany, New Jersey, bought the property. So there's the answer. I knew I had... Uh, knock it down. Read it somewhere. Um, yeah, talk about... Uh, um, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if that would have been the end to the Craftsman Farms that yeah. knocked down by developers for attract homes or some Put mall. some condos there. I, I, I mean... Yeah, Parsippany is probably... Uh, you get on like 287 or something, probably about an hour, hour from us. Now, these next guys, I, I definitely heard of, of one. Always. Did you ever hear of Roy Croft? Sounds familiar. So um, these guys are are paired together. Elbury Hubbard and the Roy Croft community. Uh, 
Roycroft was a reformist community of craft workers and artists which form part of the arts and crafts movement in the United States. So uh, I may have worded that confusingly. Roycroft is not a person. It's the name of the community that Albury Hubbard uh, is associated with because he was the founder. Um, Grand Poobah. Yeah, he was the Grand Poobah founding the community in 1895 in the village of East Aurora, New York, near Buffalo. Oh, they're getting a new stadium up there. You know what I heard? <laughs> we, we, we won't digress. But we were just up in that area. Uh, oh, no, we were way east of Buffalo, weren't we? We were up in the Syracuse area. Yeah, north of Syracuse. More yeah. in Stickley territory. Yes. Um, participants were known as Roy Crofters. That's the, uh, clever. Yeah. The work and philosophy of the group, often referred to as the Roy Croft movement, had a strong influence on the development of American architecture and design in the early 20th century. Hmm. Well, let's, uh, let's read on. The name Roycroft was chosen after the printers, Samuel and Thomas Roycroft, who made books in London from about 1650 to 1690. Huh. That's, that's unusual, isn't it? Yeah. And beyond this, the word Roycroft had a special significance to Albert Hubbard, meaning King's Craft. Ooh, fancy. I see. In guilds of early modern Europe, king's craftsmen were guild members who had achieved a high degree of skill and therefore made things for the king. So they're they're looking back. It's not quite medieval time, sixteen ninety, but it's um it's even post Renaissance, sixteen ninety. Yeah. It's like uh what um it's pre colonial. It's like that Jacobian kind of the yeah. Carolean. Yeah, yeah. That's that's pushing the memory banks. Yeah. Uh, the Roycroft insignia was borrowed from the monk Cassiodorus. Mm. No, Cassiodorus. Sounds Greek. A 13th century bookbinder and illuminator. Illuminator. I think that means he was the guy who drew the, you know, like the big first letters. And things like that yeah. in the books. What a job. Yeah. We gotta oh, thank man, I wish I lived back then. <laughs> Just be writing big letters all day. <laughs> By candlelight. Yeah, washing myself in a bowl <laughs> once a week. <laughs> Sounds so romantic. Oh, man. Just think of how smelly everybody was. Oh, God. Well, Albert Hubbard, he was influenced by the ideas of William Morris on a visit to England. And we learned of Morris's fascination with the Middle Ages and his romanticizing of that period of time. Yeah. So it's no surprise that the Roy Croft community, guided by Hubbard, uh, was picking up on some of that. Now, uh, Hubbard was unable to find a public publisher for his book, Little Journeys, but so inspired by Morris's Kelmscott Press, he decided to set up his own private press to print the book himself. 
founding Roycroft Press. Hmm. Well, that's the can-do attitude. Yeah. Keith taking notes. <laughs> yeah. His championing, his championing of the arts and crafts approach attracted a number of visiting craftspeople to East Aurora, and they formed a community of printers, furniture makers, metalsmiths, leathersmiths, and bookbinders. A quotation from John Ruskin formed the Roycroft Creed, a belief in working with the head, hand, and heart and mixing enough play with the work so that every task is pleasurable and makes for health and happiness. Yeah, I know the head, hand, and heart. That's pretty cool. You know, basically, let's let's put, you know, our whole heart into these things and have a nice live-work balance. Yeah. Again, a lot of common sense, but mechanization, industrialization, it's taken away um, that element from most people's lives. Yeah, the boss ain't got any time for you to be enjoying the work. No. Get to work. I'm trying to make some money here. Um, this is pretty cool. The inspiration... Inspirational leadership of Hubbard attracted a group of almost 500 people by 1910, and millions more knew of him through his essay, A Message to Garcia. Now, I hadn't ever heard of this, A Message to Garcia. Um, and I think I explain it here because I had to explain it to myself. A Message to Garcia expresses the value of individual initiative and conscientiousness in work. Well, I would say that's something that we uh, align ourselves with. As its primary example, the essay uses a dramatized version of a daring escapade performed by an American soldier, First Lieutenant Andrew S. Rowan, just prior to the Spanish-American War. The essay describes Rowan carrying a message from President William McKinley to General Calixto Garcia. Or is that Calisto? General, I think it's Calisto. General Calisto Garcia, a leader of the Cuban insurgents somewhere in the mountain vastness of Cuba. Hmm. No one knew where. There were Cubans in the Spanish-American War? I guess so. Mm -hmm. It Learned indicates... Taking initiative when carrying out a difficult task. So, let's try and recap this. Why does it say Frank Lloyd Wright right there? <laughs> My notes. <laughs> My notes. You sometimes. did only create these months ago. I know. Like, probably like four months ago. <laughs> <laughs> so the, an essay to, to Garcia basically indicates an uh, in, in essay to Garcia. A message to Garcia basically is about taking initiative when carrying out a dis difficult task. Oh, it's a um, metaphor. Right. It's a metaphor because uh, we got to get this message to Garcia. He's in the mountain vastness of Cuba. No one knows where. Here it is, you know, do your best. Um, I have to read that. Yeah, interesting. I, it's one of those things, like, it, it reminds me of when I was in my 20s. 
And I started for the first time sort of being aware of all these classical book references. Like if you type in a message to the first thing that comes up is Garcia. Wow. Oh, so it's, it's pretty lengthy. It's not an essay per se. Well, it's 42 pages, 42 pages. Yeah, That's a pretty long essay. 1899. Yeah. Expressing the value of individual initiative and conscientiousness in work. This stuff is cool. It's like, you know, I would always see these words like quixotic and not know what it meant or where it comes from. And it's like from Don Quixote. Mm -hmm. And I'd never read Don Quixote or... Uh, maybe something that's simpler to um, illustrate is like the white whale, mm -hmm. you know, someone's white whale um, coming from, you know, Moby Dick. Call me Ishmael. Right. Call me Ishmael. It My is. name is Pip and all these things. So I started reading all these penguin classics, you mm -hmm. know, the paperback version for three ninety five. I get myself a copy and um, it's interesting Paperback, two fifty. <laughs> Sold. Oh no, I'll get the hardcover. We'll be here tomorrow for eight. It, it's so it's it's cool that you know we're we're talking about the arts and crafts movement, and you know it's a, basically a, a a podcast about furniture and furniture styles, and you come across these references like this. Yeah. Um. A message to Garcia indicates taking initiative when carrying out a difficult task. Hmm. It's cool. Uh, it makes us more well-rounded people, more literate. Yeah, maybe I'll read that on the plane next week. Oh, yeah, yeah. That'd be cool. Um, so there you have it. Uh, we just talked the Roy Croft, Albert Hubbard, and the Roy Croft community. A message to Garcia. Um, here's some some more names you might uh, recognize: Charles Sumner and Henry Mather Green. Green with an E. Yeah, green with an E, like Green Street Joinery mm -hmm. with an E, with three E's. Their architectural firm was an influential voice in early 20th century America. Should clarify, it's Charles Sumner Green and Henry Mather Green. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Thank Not you. Not Charles that. Sumner and Henry, Henry Mather Green. Right. These are the two, the the Green boys. Yeah. Charles and Henry Green. Everybody seemed to have a middle name back then. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's weird. Charles and Henry Green. Or they'd be like C.S. Green and H.M. Green. Right. Go with, a, with a first and middle initial. Like C.S. Lewis. And they had an architectural firm, uh, became a very influential voice in early 20th century America. Oh, yeah. Um, active primarily in California. Um, their houses in larger scales, ultimate bungalows, are prime exemplars of the American arts and crafts movement. Um, these guys are not lightweights. They both have degrees from MIT, yeah. Massachusetts Institute of Technology. Um, I think that's like a local community college, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Just one step, one step up from Brookdale. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, no. So they're accomplished. They're architects. They've got degrees from MIT. And uh, while viewing Japanese architecture at the World Columbian Expo in Chicago, it, it left a lasting impression on them that could be evidenced in their work following. Oh, yeah. I knew there was a Chicago link. Yeah. I just couldn't remember what it was. The Gambrell House. This is sort of like, I mean, you dream of living in a house like this. Look oh, at it. Oh, yeah. Now, um, it, it's, I'll just say this. If you don't, know of the Gambrell house, G-A-M-B-R-E-L by Green Brothers. Do yourself a favor and look it up. Not a Gambrell roof in sight. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's just stunning. Yeah. And in, I, I want, it's, it's not exactly understated, but it's, it's not well, it's, it's tucked back into the hardscape and the landscape, which mm -hmm. it kind of obscures the house a little bit. If this thing was sitting in the middle of an open field, right, it would be pretty grand, you know, because it's a big, it's a big ass house. Yes, it's got to be what five thousand, mm -hmm. eight thousand square feet or something. It's big. Um, I don't know what the hell the dogs I mean, are doing up there. Several roof lines, mm -hmm. but they're all, you know, nearly flat. Yeah, very low slope. Um, Couldn't have this in a snowy... Uh, no. I mean, it really does scream California, too, when you look at it. The, the lushness. Yeah. The colors of the house, the materials of the house. And clearly, Japanese influence yeah. has sort of that pagoda look with these stacked roof lines and little cupolas and stuff. Man, I love that house. And so we're just looking sweet. at one shot of the outside. Yeah, and it's not even a good picture. No. Um, because you can't encompass this building in one picture. I would love to take a trip out to California and go to some of these yeah. green and green houses. The green and green approach. The use or avoidance of machinery was less the issue than taking a no-compromise approach to design. These guys, um, I mean the intricacy of some of their designs mm -hmm. that appear simple almost. It, it's, it's amazing. And the craftsmen that, you know, brought their ideas to life were amazing. The whole brothers. Yeah. Or were they brothers? Um, I think they were. Yeah. Uh, whatever the design required was built machine or no machine. The integrity, beauty, and utility of the finished piece of furniture was what mattered. Unlike Stickley, the Green's furniture was not simplified, nor was it accessible to everyone. <laughs> in fact, it Nearly was... Nearly no one. <laughs> it was exclusive in all regards. Only the wealthiest of clients could afford the Green design houses and furniture. And only the most accomplished woodworkers could build to their specifications. Um, I, I, that would be some ultimate. Um, imagine living in a Green Brothers house, like how awestruck you'd be every day. 
I, I don't know if I could even do it. Yeah. Like, I'd be worried about damaging things. Mm -hmm. I love that whole era of California. Yeah. Like, the, uh, you ever seen American Horror Story? No, but they, they the have, house, like, the bungalows. It's not a, well, no, it's not a bungalow. It's, like, one of those mansions, but, you know, I forget. Uh, it was definitely built in the teens, I think. Let me see if they have a, a uh, um, name of the architect. Let's see. Real LA mansion used as a murder house. Yada, yada, yada. Discuss amongst yourselves. This is a horrible article. Rosenheim Mansion. Mm. The outside is, it's uh, oh. brick, but the inside yeah. is very... Of that time period. Yeah. That's cool. Built in 1902 by German-American architect Alfred Rosenheim. Yeah. Anyway, back to your regularly scheduled uh, programming. Well, so as a young man, Charles, Charles Sumner Green, he dreamed of being an artist. Um, but he went to MIT, became an architect and devoted his creative energy almost exclusively to the designs of houses and furniture. You could see, yeah, I mean, definitely artistic flair. Yeah. Beauty and usefulness were of supreme importance. Charles Green called it architecture as a fine art. Hmm. These guys are really, I mean, I'm like in awe of them. Yeah, they're phenoms. His younger brother, Henry, expressed it equally well. The whole construction was carefully thought out. There was a reason for every detail. Uh, the idea was to eliminate everything unnecessary to make the whole as direct and efficient as possible, but always with the beautiful in mind as the final goal. Yeah. You can actually find on YouTube some tours of the houses. I think... Uh Mark Spagnuolo, the Wood Whisperer, has one. Mm. Uh, it might be the Blacker House, uh, where he goes around with, with. Uh, I think it's actually is Daryl Pert, I think, or Peart. Oh. I don't know how you, if he's like a Neil Peart. Yeah. Or a <laughs> um, goes around with him because he's a big green and green guy, and uh, they talk about all these little details that you know you would never just notice on your own. Yeah. Yeah. Well, segueing on that last sentence of yours, the Greens' approach did not go unnoticed. Mm. On a visit to America in 1909, Charles Robert Ashby, a leading voice of the English arts and crafts movement, singled out the Greens' work as equal to the finest English craftsmanship. Yeah, well, be well. Better, actually. <laughs> and in so, he said... Beautiful cabinets and chairs of walnut and, do you say they lignum vitae? Yeah. Exquisite doweling and pegging and in all a supreme feeling for the material. Quite up to the best of our English craftsmanship. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. Show me the English green and green. Yeah. I, there, I don't think there is one. Maybe Chippendale, but <clears throat> right. Um, not of the same 
era. Vital collaboration with the Hall brothers. In the early years as a firm, the Greens were unable to secure reliable and skilled craftsmen to execute their complex architectural and furniture construction. So they have all these great ideas and nobody can build them. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's a problem. That's, this is the, when we talk and bemoan the diminishing amount of craftsmen, this is one of the results of that. Mm -hmm. yeah, it doesn't matter how good of an idea you have. You can't find somebody to execute it. Mm-hmm. Exactly. In 1904, the Greens began collaborating with master builders Peter and John Hall, whose interest in structural integrity held equal status with beauty. Cool. The Hall brothers formed a vital part of the Green and Green firm in Pasadena, California. Uh, the quality of work produced required much more than the usual designer-builder relationship. Their deep understanding of each other was absolutely essential. The Greens were lifelong woodworkers. As teenagers, they attended Calvin Woodward's manual training school in St. Louis, where their day was divided evenly between intellectual subjects and drafting or crafts, such as machine tool making and woodworking. So they were hands-on guys. Yeah. Um, I mean, they became you know, more idea men, mm -hmm. but their foundation is in the practical application of the skill. Um, and Charles Green did not shy away from wielding tools and in later years practiced his carving skills professionally as shown at left. Sorry, I did not include the link. <laughs> Henry was also known to take on woodworking projects. Indeed, it is important to note that the Greens had a good working knowledge of manual skills before they trained in architecture. Um, I like when I jump ahead in my own thought processes and then wrap it up. <laughs> it's a natural progression. <laughs> yeah. The Halls, uh, more than most makers, learned the finer points of design at an early age. Their father most likely trained them at home in the Sloyd method, which placed a high value on teaching design and handcrafts as part of a child's education. Hmm. So these guys were, they were made for each other because they both had uh, knowledge and experience in the other's main field. Yeah. Um, both the Hall brothers designed and built personal projects. But John especially had a solid design sense, um, as well as his ability to assimilate the green and green approach. So they did their own thing, um, but they were sort of like the, you know, like they talk about like the quarterback being the coach on the field mm -hmm. and all this other stuff. It, it seems like the Halls were the quarterback and the Greens were the coach. Yeah. You know, they could bring these things to life. Uh, biographers and scholars have documented a remarkable connection between Charles Green and John Hall. It's said that Charles would visit the Hall shop in Pasadena on his daily rounds and would engage John on the details of whatever piece of furniture was on the bench. One can only speculate on the nature of these conversations. 
Ah, to be a fly on the wall. Yeah. In in the midst of greatness. That'd be a cockroach on the floor. <laughs> in California, they have those big water bugs. Yeah. Oh God. The built-in bookcases of the 1909 Thorson House in Berkeley, California, are a prime example. Um, and we're talking about the relationship now be between uh, the halls and the uh, greens. Most woodworkers understand that bookshelves must be beefy to support the considerable weight of books. And uh, most woodworkers understand the dilemma in designing heavy-duty shelves that will sustain the weight of their contents without appearing too bulky or unattractive in their design. Yeah, this makes me realize uh, that Wood Whisperer video, it's mm -hmm. the Thorson House. It's the Thorson House? Yeah. The greens turn this would-be problem into a, an aesthetic asset. Uh, I'm not sure if I have the link there because I, I, I'm familiar with this. Yeah, me too. Particular. This jogged my memory about that video. Um, viewing the shelf straight on, we see a slender, pleasing profile. Uh, looking on the underside, we see a waterfall detail that not only is aesthetically pleasing, but also allows the deeper body of the shelf to gradually become more robust. Mm -hmm. Um this detour in the service of beauty and function created considerably more work. Uh, but apparently that was of little concern to the designers, makers, and clients. And the execution is just, it's unbelievable. Oh, yeah. A hundred years later, it still looks... It, it's its unbelievable it, because it looks handmade. Yeah. But it, it's like, its it's so well done. Um... Another characteristic of green and green design is that two elements rarely meet in the same plane. Consider, for example, the shelf's broad breadboard end. It's proud of the panel and in every change of elevation, most of which is on the seldom seen bottom side. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's, I mean, come on. The use of escutcheons is another prime example of beauty. <laughs> <laughs> just got sent a very good meme oh man the use of escutcheons is another prime example of beauty at a cost rather than relying on off the shelf hardware something the greens seldom did they delicately carved an inlaid ebony in place of a manufactured metal piece again this treatment represents an enormous amount of additional work in the pursuit of beauty. Um, more about the green designs. They, they rarely repeated things. Uh, unlike many of their contemporaries in the American arts and crafts movement, the greens did not repeat their design for mass production. Each piece was designed for a specific client and setting. Um, reminds me a lot of Frank Lloyd Wright. Mm -hmm. Details often were developed for these settings and never duplicated. Um, at the same time, a distinctive continuity of style permeates the designs of the Green's mature period, uh, which is like 1907, 1912. Um, individual settings or rooms, however, were always distinct from one another as shown in the rockers on page 56 on the next page. That's, I should have uh, 
included that link if I was going to make that note. I wonder if I have, uh, I can't remember if I have all the links down in one spot, but what we're saying is the greens didn't repeat yet. They had such a definitive style, mm-hmm. uh, which is not easy to accomplish. Yeah. Yeah. Because shit, you run out of inspiration. Uh-huh. Um, so this meant dipping into the well of creativity for fresh material each set for each setting for each client. Um, the green's most productive and creative span, particularly regarding furniture lasted about seven years, man, not a long time from 1906 to 1912. It was an intense time for the greens who received roughly 150 commissions for residential dwellings and their furnishings. So they were just busting it out. Yeah. Um, The greens produced hundreds of individual furniture designs, which undoubtedly put an immense strain on Charles Green's creative resources. (laughs) In fact, he took a seven-month period of rest in England in 1909, leaving Henry to keep projects on track in the office. (laughs) The amount of detail in green and green furniture and architectural designs can seem overwhelming. Uh, yeah, it can. I mean, you look at those nooks and everything, a stair, the staircases. Oh yeah. Oh my God. Um, even among details that were repeated, each instance of their use was reimagined with context in mind. An expedient cut and paste was not part of the green's way of working. Um, for example, they incorporated an inspired cloud lift which was frequently seen in Ming Dynasty furniture where it's identified as a humpback stretcher when uh, used in a chair. Mm -hmm. In nearly infinite variety, depending upon the setting, sometimes the pattern would be upside down, sometimes on end, and other variations. Yeah, the the cloud lift is probably the thing that um, that maybe with the pillowed sort of, um, you know, proud tannin, uh, most identified with the greens. Mm-hmm. Uh, beauty and usefulness. Many of the greens designs were inherently complex and the seemingly streamlined appearances could be deceiving. Yeah, we kind of went over this. The complexity was not present for its own sake, however, but rather was a byproduct of the beauty and usefulness. Um. <laughs> and here comes here comes the downside. I mean, yeah. you could see I wrote so much about them because of how, you know, we're just enamored with their work. Yeah. Obsessive detail collides with price and delays. Green and green furniture marks an inspiring moment in the history of American design and craftsmanship, no doubt. But in the end, the brothers' business declined due to the very thing that made them exceptional. By 1913, the Greens' uncompromising design and manufacture approach led to escalating prices and recurrent schedule delays. As a result, the Greens' clientele became increasingly (laughs) intolerant toward them, which further prevented their ability to attract new opportunities. Oh, man. 
Let, to, let this be a lesson. Yeah, for today's would-be designers and makers, though, the obsessive detail and endless variety of the Greens furniture make the subject a treasure worth years of study. Yeah. Yeah, it's... Um, <clears throat> it, uh, it's something that somebody like us, we'd have to spend so much time really... Um, perfecting these these things and we you can't make a living at it you couldn't make a living at it and no. the greens themselves couldn't you know just they couldn't for sustain just it for a short period of time right all right so th there are a lot more influential figures within the arts and crafts movement um that uh, they simply cannot be added to this one episode so i'm just going to note two more and you may not think of this guy right off the bat, uh, and that's why I included him. Mm -hmm. uh, Lewis Comfort Tiffany. Again, the middle name, and it's it's an unusual middle name, yeah. Comfort. Um, but it's it's the three name name. Tiffany was an interior designer, and in 1878, his interest turned towards the creation of stained glass when he opened his own studio and glass foundry because he was unable to find the type of glass that he desired in interior decoration. So we don't necessarily um, pair Tiffany with the arts and crafts movement, but he was really a part of it. Yeah. Uh, here in America. Yeah. I mean, I know the greens uh, definitely use Tiffany glass mm -hmm. in, in some of the homes. Yeah. Uh, his inventiveness both as a designer of windows and as a producer of the material with which to create them was to become renowned. Uh, Tiffany wanted the glass itself to transmit texture and rich colors, and he developed a type of glass he called Favreal, uh, which is an iridescent art glass. I feel like Tommy G dropped that word on us mm -hmm. when we were in the shop. Yeah, yeah. And... I didn't remember this, but this was the guy we were talking about in last episode. Hey, Pugin. Hey, Pugin, Augustus Pugin, uh, born 1812, only lived to 40. Man, died in yeah. 1852. Uh, he precedes the arts and crafts movement um, and was a leader in Gothic revival architecture. But he advocated truth to materials and structure and function, as did the arts and crafts uh, artisans. So I, I noted him because he was kind of, um, you know, he was the influence. It yeah. was a direct influence on the guys that would um, follow. You know, the year before he died, he was saying awful bad things about the Great Exhibition. So I think <laughs> he might have gotten taken out. <laughs> And that's it. That's all we have for um for, for the, notable figures. For notable figures. Yeah, that was good. Um I'm all pumped up because of talking about the greens. Yeah, you know, I was talking to some people yesterday and they didn't know who the who the greens were. Oh man. In Clubhouse. Yeah, they they're not as well known as like Stickley or Morris in some. Well, Morris, mm -hmm. I mean, because he's got the Morris chair. Yeah, maybe people don't know it's a guy. Well, I, I feel like if you know Stickley, you gotta know the Greens. 
Yeah, I mean, we do. I don't think these people even knew Stickley. Oh. So. Well, if you, yeah, if you don't know Stickley, hmm. I mean, and because they're, they sort of have, um, what would you call it? I the, don't know Stickley, but I know Bourbon Moth. <laughs> they, the, um, Audi Stickley, it's called now. I'm not yeah. sure how that's. I think there's also of Stickley too, though, isn't there? I don't know. I don't yeah. know like what the relationship is to the old name and old designs, and um, if it's just a new company that bought the name, which happens sometimes. I forget. I did look into this at one point, but I can't. I can't remember. Because like uh, Triumph Motorcycles, they when Triumph went out of business, they were out of business for a while. Then a guy named Hinkley just bought the name. Right, yeah. And now, like, the new Triumphs, there's no relationship to the old Triumphs. Right, except, yeah, it's just they bought the likeness. Yeah, so yeah. I wonder if the new Stickley is is that. Well, or, they definitely do have Stickley designs. I know mm -hmm. that, but, you know, like, they're making stuff that looks like Stickley furniture. Yeah. But, yeah, I don't know if there's any relation to any... You know, stickly lineage. Yeah, yeah. Well, we uh, hope you guys enjoyed. Yeah, it's lunchtime now. Yeah, I'm uh, hungry. <laughs> you want to help support the podcast? You could join the Patreon. You can use uh, one of our coupon codes over at Bits and Bits or at uh, VestingUSA.com. Uh, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Tell your friends if you're enjoying the podcast, and keep tuning in. Yeah, take care, everybody. We'll see you next week. <laughs>